The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Neil Young is an old hand at protesting, as Spotify has found to its chagrin, and Peloton, well, it's a hot mess. Tune in for more. This Breaking Views podcast is sponsored by Refinitiv, a London stock exchange group business. Welcome to The Views Room. I'm Rob Cox, the editor of Breaking Views, the financial commentary arm of Reuters News, coming to you from Zurich, Switzerland. This week, we delve into three stories. First, we look at Spotify's Joe Rogan problem. Canadian troubadour and crazy horse frontman Neil Young took his tunes off the streaming group's platform over the talk show host's spreading of misinformation related to COVID-19 vaccines. Later, it emerged that Rogan, whom Spotify signed for like $100 million, used racial slurs in past episodes. Spotify CEO Daniel Ek condemned Rogan for that, but refused to ax him. That may be because Rogan represents a podcast pivot that's key to boosting earnings, says Liam Proud. While I had Liam and EMEA editor Peter Thal Larson on the line, we also talked about how a few failed deals illuminate the red lines for semiconductor mergers. The regulatory foiling of UK-based ARM and Germany's Siltronic, deals worth some $45 billion altogether, says more about scarce technology than the prospects of industry consolidation, they say. Finally, John Foley, our U.S. editor, talks about John Foley, the Peloton CEO, that is, no relation to our John Foley. The fitness firm's founder brought in a new boss to replace him this week, but like lots of techie companies, he and some bros control the business through super voting shares. Rob Searin thinks he should give up the voting power. Good luck with that, Rob. Give a listen. So here we are on a podcast talking about podcasts. Liam, you've written quite a bit over the last couple of weeks about Spotify's run-ins with some of its artists, chief of them, chief among them, Neil Young, because of some podcasts that that Spotify has on there, particularly Joe Rogan, which Neil Young and others have accused of spreading misinformation about vaccinations and COVID-19. What's uh, what's your take? Where's the business angle in this? Or is this just a bunch of artists screaming about, about like they don't like to be on the same platform? Thanks, Rob. Nice to be here. I think from the, um, this is one of those stories that's like very much in the center of the culture, but where you can actually learn quite a lot by looking at the financial incentives at play. So as you said, basically what's happened is there's a guy called Joe Rogan, who is a talk show host. He has an exclusive deal with Spotify. They're paying him about $100 million, according to the Wall Street Journal, over the life of his contract. And he has said some very unpleasant things. He's used the N-word. He has spread some what is quite obviously misinformation about vaccines and hosted some pretty unpleasant people on his podcast. Understandably, some kind of aging rockers like Neil Young and Joni Mitchell have taken umbrage at this and have said, we're going to pull our music from Spotify. So the question I think is, what is Daniel Ek, the founder and CEO of Spotify? What is he going to do here? He has really stuck by Joe Rogan. And I think to understand why he's doing that, um, I highly doubt he shares his politics. Um, I think why he's doing that is is really for financial reasons. So, I mean, basically, the thing to know about Spotify is they have to give almost all their revenue straight out. It goes straight out of the door to the music labels, Um, the likes of Universal Music and Warner and Sony. They kind of have them over a barrel in those negotiations. So Eck. Spotify, they have launched this huge pivot into podcasts where they're saying we're going to do this different business. It's not going to all go straight out of the door. Um, and we're going to keep the revenue ourselves. So Joe Rogan is absolutely central to this. Um, and deserting him, I think, Eck worries that it would look like he's deserting that strategy. 
so they pay him a hundred million dollars or whatever it is over many years. And then, but they, they don't have to keep paying royalties because all those hours that are listened, unlike say when I put on, let it bleed by the Rolling Stones, every, you know, 60, 80% of every, of every, of all the economics go to the stones or their publisher. This is, that's the reason you want podcasts, right? Plus there's hours and hours that are spent versus, I don't know, eight minutes for give me shelter. Yeah, that's exactly it. The economics are totally different between the two types of content. Um, I mean, you can you can get a you can get a clue by looking at Acast, which is a Swedish podcast publisher. All these companies seem to be in Sweden for some reason. I don't mm-hmm. know. It's a different podcast, and they have much higher gross margins, which is just the amount of money you keep after paying the people that actually make the audio content that you're paying out. Um, wh- why is that the case? It's I think it's a function of the way the music industry works. The music industry is basically controlled by these big cartels of three labels, um, Sony, Warners, and Universal. And they account for about, if you, if you add in a collection of indie labels as well called Merlin, they account for about 80% of all the listening time on Spotify. So if <laughs> it's, it's kind of a situation, if you're the Universal CEO and then Spotify tries to negotiate down your royalties, you say, hey, good luck having a streaming service without Drake and Lady Gaga. Um, you know, see, see you next time. So they always get what they want. Right, right. And so so in the end, the, this has hit Spotify. I mean, I'm looking at the stock. The stock is is down about 20% over the last week. You know, that's that's. I know the tech companies have been hit, but Netflix isn't down as much and basically set aside Facebook. They seem, they seem to be underperforming. So, so, so something's happening here. I think a big chunk of that share price sell-off is because they – they scared the market with a kind of new growth outlook, which is kind of complicated. There's a lot of moving parts, but it was basically they put out a forecast that implied they were going to grow much slower than the market hoped they would. So that is that's relevant to the share price, and it also means that it would be quite a dangerous time for Eck to change his strategy. So if you're if you're thinking about asking him to ditch his kind of podcast growth thing, just as investors are freaking out about the company, I think that's quite unlikely. I think I think the question now is what what do the other big artists do? I mean, I was a little bit surprised that we haven't seen more kind of contemporary um, big names talk about pulling their music. And I I wonder if there's quite a clear explanation to this. And it comes back again to the power of the labels. Basically, the labels would need to give their consent if all their artists decided to pull their music from Spotify. The labels have a lot of contractual bargaining power over their artists. They really control the economic rights to the master recordings. Now, is Universal going to sanction half of its artists pulling their music from Spotify? No, they're not going to sanction that because they make way more than half of their revenue from from streaming. So they're not going to cut themselves off at the knees. So I but think Neil, Neil is special in some way. I mean, he's he just doesn't care. He's you know like hell with it. I'm Neil Young. I do what I like. Yeah, I think I think I, mean, I think the question is what, why did Warner allow him to pull his music? And I I'm not really sure. I mean, maybe maybe he has some kind of special relationship with them. But um, yeah, I don't know. I can't I can't see it becoming a mass a mass thing. Or at least I can't see the labels allowing it to become a mass thing. Right. Okay. Well, let's bring in Peter Thal Larson, our your your our fellow London editor. Hi, Peter. Hi. Let's talk about something else that Liam's been writing about as well, and you've been editing and and, and working on, which is a bunch of deals that have gone off the rails, largely because regulators have have uh, signaled that they wouldn't like them to go through. These are in the chip semiconductor business. Um, we had one which was a German maker called uh, Siltronics, which was going to be acquired by a uh, Taiwanese semiconductor maker. And then the other one was Arm Holdings in the UK, which uh, is actually owned by SoftBank, which was going to be sold 
to NVIDIA of the US. And both these deals in the last couple of weeks have blown up. Peter, what's like, how do we read this? Is this just a general antitrust uh, shift or is it something specific to an industry? Well, I think there's a couple of things going on. I mean, it's no coincidence that, that both these companies in, at very different, in very different ways actually are involved in the semiconductor business. Uh, Arm is, is a very high-end designer of chips and its designs are used by Apple and, and various other people for chips in their devices. So it's very much at the kind of like the, 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 the bleeding edge of the, of the chip industry. And, and Siltronic is, is, a, is, is at the other end really is a maker of these wafers, which are then the chips, the chips are printed on. So um, so very different parts of the business, but there's a couple of things going on. What, I mean, what we've seen is during the pandemic is that there's been a huge shortage of semiconductors. I mean, the car industry, you know, various other companies have all struggled with this. And, um, and so there's been a sort of a heightened sense of the importance of chip supply chains by governments and by regulators. And I think, so that's really what seems to be the case in the Siltronic Global Wafers takeover. Global Wafers is a Taiwanese company. Siltronic is German. There was a fairly strong case to be made that actually the two of them together would be in better shape in what is a very cyclical and capital intensive industry than, than separately. There didn't appear to be a big antitrust problem. I mean, I think they're the number three and number four in the world or something like that in this industry. But basically what happened was this needed this deal needed approval of the German from the German authorities. And the German authorities just did not respond to requests for approval. So mm. after a year the deal lapsed and the Germans, the Germans never actually outright came and said, we don't want this or we think it's anti-competitive or anything. They just didn't let it happen. And the suspicion has to be that in that case, there was just a sense that, you know, said, well, actually, we quite like having a German company that makes these wafers. Um, and so we can, you know, we can we can have some control over that supply of wafers if we need it. And we don't want it falling in the hands of a Taiwanese company. But they never actually said that outright. So. That deal just fell apart. Passive oh. aggressive, passive aggressive German reg <laughs> antitrust regulators. Whereas uh, the the other one, the Arm deal, was a little more outright. No, and there was a yeah. I mean, it was you know. So as I said, Arm Arm is a designer. Uh, it operate. It, it has this very kind of like unique position in the sort of chip industry, where it designs for all these other chip makers, and so every, all these other chip makers are its customers. And what was happening here really was Nvidia. Which, which is a, a big chip company in its own right, and also a big chip designer, was was came along and, and, and bought it from SoftBank, the company that owns Arm. And that immediately kind of put the backs up of all of Arm's customers because Arm's, a lot of Arm's customers also compete with NVIDIA and were unhappy about the idea of NVIDIA controlling this company, which would then have access, in, in theory, you know, to their designs and their aspirations for designing new chips and so forth. So... So they kicked up a fuss right away. And then really what happened was, was, was antitrust regulators in lots of different countries all got involved. So in the US, the Federal Trade Commission actually sued to stop the deal. The UK was reported to be unhappy. The EU was reported unhappy. The Chinese were reported to be unhappy. So there was, there were, there were, they were all kind of lining up to, to block this deal. And it was clear from the beginning that there, there, that there might be a problem here. There is also, though, in, in Arm's case, there is also an, another, an overlay of sort of chip nationalism uh, which is in because it's a UK company headquarters outside Cambridge in the UK, and and it has a lot of these scientists, you know, very highly highly expert, will experts there working on this, and there is always a concern that maybe you know that those people might be moved might be moved somewhere else. 
problem is that the UK has, has in, until recently, had limited powers to do anything about it. And actually, the UK government agreed in 2016 that ARM could be sold to SoftBank. So the UK has somewhat given up control over, over its ability to control ARM. It may still have some influence over its ownership in the future. But that is definitely a concern now as, as SoftBank thinks about what to do with ARM. Um, that the UK government would wants to make sure Arm remains a UK company. Right, right. And what is so? What's the plan here, Liam? You 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 covered SoftBank quite a bit. Now SoftBank had paid something like thirty-two billion dollars for Arm. What are they going to? What are they? How are they going to make? How are they going to recoup that money? I mean, the short answer is that they might not. Yeah, I'm, I'm just, the, the most recent piece on this was written by my colleague Karen. But I mean, it would, we've done similar exercises in the past, and it's it's really hard from a kind of valuation point of view to see how they make much of a return on this asset, which is kind of amazing, really, given that the chip sector has kind of done really well in share price terms since 2016 when yeah. they originally. But at the same time, what's happened with ARM is they have suppressed the profits at ARM because they've been investing for the future. So it doesn't really make a huge amount of money. And the revenue has kind of like it's grown a little bit, but it hasn't been soaring like NVIDIA's revenue has been soaring. So it's kind of in this weird stage where SoftBank bought it. Um, they took it private. They said, we're not going to run it for profits. We're going to run it for investment. And we'll see these investments produce these amazing revenues in a few years time. But that hasn't happened or it hasn't happened at least yet. So I think it's going to be quite hard sell if they want to float it on public markets in New York. looks like the most likely location. It's going to be hard for them to get the kind of bumper valuation that they would need to say, look, what a great investment. Right. And and overall, I mean, Peter, what's your sense? Is this OK? Is this this sort of these two deals are reflective of the the current crisis around semiconductors. Does it tell us anything more broadly about the way antitrust regulators are viewing mergers and acquisitions? Well, I think yes. I mean, I think it 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 shows that there's sort of I think we're probably in in these antitrust cases. There used to be sort of a presumption of innocence. There's now, particularly in the tech sector, and particularly when the when the deals are big. There's almost a presumption of guilt, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, we've seen that not just in the, in the chip sector, but also with with some other big deals. You know, Microsoft, you know, making big acquisitions in the in the in the computer games industry. The knee-jerk reaction is always like, "Oh, surely this isn't going to be allowed," right? Um, mm-hmm. It may well be, but and that's obviously the big debate is whether there is a is there a sort of a a legal basis to block these deals on an antitrust level. And at some point, is, is one of these companies going to actually challenge one of these rulings? I mean, it looks like Arm and NVIDIA decided that the cards were stacked against them and uh, you know there was no point carrying on and, uh, and, 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 and SoftBank needed to move to plan B. But you can easily imagine that in some of these other cases, if you get to court and an antitrust regulator or government actually has to prove that this acquisition will harm consumers in some way, that that might be a difficult case to make. So um, I, I would I would imagine that, that some of these big tech companies are still going to keep sort of trying at various levels to, to make these things happen and probably are also looking for a, almost for a case study where they can, um, you know, they can challenge a ruling and, um, and, and sort of see, you know, is this a situation where actually the authorities have, are, are, are making these cases on a sound legal basis? Or is there actually a sense that they're not, and that if in that case, if they want to block these deals in the future, they're going to have to, um, you know, basically rewrite the competition rules? Okay, thank you guys for your views. Talk to you next week.
Thanks, Rob. Thanks. It's been a wild ride in the last few days for Peloton Interactive. Its chief executive, John Foley, who helped found the company, um, has stepped aside somewhat to let in a new chief executive. The shares had collapsed, now they're up again. I am also John Foley, but a different John Foley. And I'm here with my colleagues, Lauren Silver-Laughlin and Robert Siren, all coming to you from New York or thereabouts, to find out what's going on with Peloton. So a few months ago, a year ago, Peloton financially looked like me at the beginning of a workout. And now it looks like <laughs> me at the end of a workout. What, like what went wrong? Well, well, I don't really know. <laughs> I don't really know how you look before and after workouts, John. Um, no, <laughs> <You> but, <laughs> I, I thought you were going to say pre-pandemic, post That's sort of like me. By the way, like I've always been a Peloton fan. There's like two things that I love in life is like Peloton and Domino's Pizza, both as things and as, as companies to cover. So like I was writing about Peloton before writing about Peloton is exciting to write about. But like the biggest problem is just that the world changed. I really don't think it was a Peloton problem. I think it was a problem with the fact that people wanted to work out at home. And then all of a sudden they didn't want to work out at home. And Peloton was just at the center of all of that. So their stock price fell and they sort of were scrambling to, you know, fix their cost structure, find new ways to, you know, offer products and offer them at different prices. And, and it seems like nothing's really worked. And so then there were these rumors of the company being sold and, you know, potential acquirers, everyone from, you know, hearing out Disney and Apple and Nike and Lululemon. And, you know, lo and behold, about a week ago, there was a more legitimate sale rumor. And then, you know, it sort of kicked off these conversations that have led to the stock price going up. So you said like, because you said this is not a, this is like a, a universe problem of the person problem, but like still the CEO is actually, I mean, he's not out, right? Because he's going to be executive chairman and this this guy, Barry McCarthy, who's former Spotify Netflix is coming in as the chief executive. But like, if it's not, if it's not a Peloton problem, why would the founder feel like he has to move aside? I think it kind of was a Peloton problem, right? Because they, they did things like at the height of the pandemic, when people were buying lots of exercise bikes, they bought factories, you know, and they expanded production. And then what do you know, once the pandemic ended, suddenly there were a lot of extra exercise bikes and, you know, a lot of their revenue just suddenly disappeared. It was kind of a, a obviously silly mistake to make. And then they've also had problems getting a hold of their cost structure, you know, like their costs have just totally inflated. The stock went up on news that Foley was going to step aside and McCarthy was going to come in. And a lot of that's just because the company's been burning a ton of cash. They burned a billion dollars in the past six months. And the new plan is they're going to cut like $800 million of annual costs and they're going to slash CapEx by $150 million. So, you know, they're making the right steps, at least in terms of just, you know, stanching the cash flow. I mean, I would argue, though, that they... Yes, their cost structure has ballooned, but they don't have a problem that's really any different than your average tech company that's trying to compete for subscribers. Like they go out there, they spend a ton of money just to try to get people to pay for their product. And one thing that they pay a lot of money for is that hardware. Like the way that Peloton's cost structure works is they bring in a ton for the sale of the bike and the subscription that goes along with it. So like, I agree with you in hindsight, like John Foley going out and buying, you know, the manufacturing equipment to try to sell these things looks like a bad idea. But if, if the pandemic had gone on for longer and things were going in another direction, one could also argue that 
maybe he should have done that if bike sales continued to go up. So I feel like it's like a, just he's backed into this kind of not so great section of the world right now. I mean, I kind of agree, like the and the subscription thing is definitely thing that Peloton has in its favor, right? Because investors like subscription models right now. It's like you have this kind of semi-guaranteed, not guaranteed, but you have this predictable revenue stream. But I don't know, like the comparison with the tech firms, I, I've always been a bit of a Peloton skeptic, not just because I hate the idea of cycling in like a, a route in a window. <laughs> Just, which horrifies me, but like, just I feel like the problem with fitness companies generally is that there are like it's such a bad investment fitness generally because it's people are faddish, people get bored, but also there are so many substitute products. I can like I can cancel my subscription, I can buy some running shoes, I can do CrossFit, I can buy a hula hoop, I can do anything. Like the, the keeping people hooked on Peloton specifically seems to be really hard. Whereas that's not so much a problem with like Spotify, for example, where there are substitutes but not many, and it's hard to switch. But the reality is Peloton actually has a very low churn rate. So, I mean, it's true that like I'm driving on the highway and now I'm starting to see Pelotons thrown in the back of people's truck and they're buying them on Craigslist. But historically, <laughs> like <laughs> that is a true story. But like historically, Peloton has shown that once you get that bike, you get that bike in the person's house, they're going to keep it there and they're going to pay. And the reason why they pay is because the subscription is like, it's 30 bucks if you have the bike, it's 15 if you like me, don't pay for the bike, but just do the app. And you kind of like everything else in my life, forget about it. It's 15 bucks a month that I don't even think about like a gym membership. You continue to pay for long after the time that you stop working out and using that. So, so yes, you know, the fitness fad comes and goes, but maybe there is an argument that there's room for the $15 subscription for the thing in your house. And then, you know, the crunch or edge or whatever, 10, 15 bucks that you pay outside of your house to go to the gym. Fair enough. Oh, so on fat on the subject of fads, though, I want to ask you, Rob, about this, the other fad that is like a long fad that doesn't seem to be going away, which is companies with super voting shares, of which Peloton is one. So, so Foley has super voting shares. He's got, I think, is it 40% of the votes in the company? So he's moving aside upstairs, however you want to call it. He's becoming executive chairman, but he's still casts probably the deciding vote in, in every major decision, right? So where does that leave us? Because well, he's kind of gone, but he's still there. Well, a few things. First off, the 40% includes options. So his actual votes are, are, are a bit less. But the other founders have shares as well, and he can always exercise options. So it's complicated. But you can definitely say that he has a huge influence on the company, and he can, he can prevent things from happening that he doesn't like. And that's potentially a problem. You know, with the new CEO, Foley's going to remain executive chairman. And if... McCarthy, the new CEO, decides to do something that Foley doesn't like, will he be allowed to continue? It's unclear. But in similar situations we've seen in the past, this hasn't really worked out that well. I'm thinking of two cases in particular, Zynga and Magna. One was a Canadian car company, and the other one was uh, the, the games company. And, and Zynga is probably the best example. Their founder, he stepped aside, another CEO was brought in, and he didn't. it turns out the founder didn't like the new CEO, so he got rid of him after uh, a couple of years. He went back to being CEO. The stock didn't do anything for, for almost a decade. And then he agreed to give up super voting rights for shares. In other words, give up control. And then a few years later, the company was sold at a huge premium. So, you know, if, for, for investors, you, you don't want the CEO sticking around, you know, kind of doing things for his own interest, whether it's, you know, he likes the fact that he's the founder and kind of controls this company and he wants to have, you know, a certain image, but it's problematic for investors. So if he ditches the share, the super voting shares, you're saying basically, based on Zinger's example, things might get better for him too, given that he owns 
massive slug of the company stock, right? Yeah. I mean, the company, you know, the CEO might be able to cut more costs. Maybe, you know, they could buy more, uh, buy rivals if, you know, their stock goes up in value, or maybe they might even sell themselves. They could be bought. Exactly. So who buys them? Like, if, if someone buys Patterson, who is it? Like, Lauren, you were as well. Well, I don't know. When I saw the lawsuits coming out, like, between Lululemon and Nike and Peloton, I was thinking, I, I thought at the time there must be an auction going on because they're not unusual in this industry, but also, like, I just felt like some of Peloton's competitors wanted a crack at it, and they weren't getting the crack that they wanted. And that could potentially be happening, you know, if it's true that Foley doesn't want to sell the company and there's interested buyers and now there's an activist in there. It could be that they've been sort of getting interest from competitors and and the board is not interested in engaging in that. And I do think that Nike and Lululemon would make some sense because they compete and there are, as you say, too many. And that would sort of kick some competitors out and cut some costs. But Amazon is kind of the long shot here. And I understand there's about 100 million reasons why Amazon wouldn't want to buy this thing. But there is like one good one. And that is that they have this, Amazon already have this massive subscriber base that it could just tack on new subscriptions with doing very little. So this cost that Rob pointed out at the beginning of this conversation, these massive marketing costs that Peloton has to try to acquire those new subscribers could not only go away, but then that subscription could be easily fed out to just a fraction, a tiny fraction of Amazon's own our prime subscribers. And so I think there's an opportunity there, you know, whether or not Amazon wants to get into the exercise business is another question, but they own everything else in the household. You know, why not your workout? Yeah. Well, watch the space. Let's see what John Foley decides to do next. The other John Foley, obviously. <laughs> Lauren, Rob, thanks very much. See you next time. Thanks, John. Bye-bye. That's our show for the week. Thanks to our producer, Sharon Lamb, in Toronto, and to you, dear listener, for tuning in. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, Exchange, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go to get high-quality podcasts. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Thank you.